Well, good morning once again. It's good to be together for worship. Good to sing good songs and songs of truth and hope. What an encouraging morning so far. Uh, we come this morning to Psalm 22 in our journey through the Psalms. And I just want to point out that one of the goals that I have in my preaching ministry here at Grace is to help us understand that all 66 books of the Bible, the Old and the New Testaments, have been written and preserved and are for our good and for our growth in the Lord. The Old Testament makes up roughly two-thirds of our English Bibles, and that should say something to us, that there is a lot of gold that can be mined from the Old Testament and from the pages of that part of the Bible. It is every bit as connected, relevant, and important as the New Testament. Now, I know many of us, it's easy to gravitate towards the New Testament. It's easily applicable. It seems to make more sense. There's a lot of historical context that sometimes is hard to understand as we read the Old Testament. However, it is the Word of God. It is for our good. So as we preach New Testament passages, we want to look back and make those connections so that we see the whole history of redemption. And likewise, as we preach Old Testament texts, we want to look forward to see how the history of redemption progresses, how God's plan is unfolding through Christ and through his church. And now I bring this up right at the outset because from the start of Psalm 22, we are confronted with the connection between the Old and the New Testament. The opening verses of Psalm 22 are quoted by Jesus as he hangs on the cross probably moments before his death. And I want us to understand this connection. I want us to see why Jesus quotes this and how these passages are connected. <clears throat> I don't want us to neglect the Old Testament. I want us to know it and love it every bit as much as we do the New Testament. So, as you're turning to Psalm 22, you'll notice in the back of your bulletin this morning, I put the outline for the message this morning. Psalm 22 is 31 verses, so we're not going to be able to go verse by verse as we normally do. Uh, rather, I'm going to take this more thematically in sections, three sections, and you can see that on the back of your worship folder. So, as we begin, open your Bibles to Psalm 22 and follow along as we read the Word of God. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. 
Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that as a result of our time this morning looking at Psalm 22, that our confidence in your word would grow. I ask, Lord, that we would take heart in the midst of our valleys, in the midst of our darkness and the times when we feel as there is no rescue and no hope and we are stuck. Help us to be encouraged this morning that because you heard the cry of your anointed king, you will hear our cry. So Father, come. We ask you to be among us by your spirit. Be our teacher. Open our understanding. In our flesh, we have no hope of understanding what your word says. We have no skill unto ourselves, but we ask for your help and we ask for your skill to be applied here as we try to understand your word. And above all, Father, help us to love you and worship you for what we see here. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first section that we're going to look at together is verses 1 through 11. And I am calling this the silence and the absence of God. Now I need to describe what I mean when we say the silence and the absence of God. As a church, we affirm the attributes of God as we see them in the scriptures. So as we read the Bible, we see and affirm that God is holy, that he is righteous, that he is loving, that he is just, and on and on those attributes go. We also affirm 
the attributes that are unique to God, things about his character and being that do not translate to us. This would be things like his sovereignty. God has the power and the right to do whatever he pleases. God is omniscient. He knows all things. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And God is omnipresent, which means that he is present everywhere at the same time. And all of our minds go together, right? So if we affirm that God is present everywhere, it's part of his attributes, it's who he is, how do we reconcile this with the language of Psalm 22 when it looks like God has forsaken or abandoned David? Well, I think what's going on here is that David is using the language metaphorically. You guys know what a metaphor is? It's describing one thing to help us understand another. And so he's using this language metaphorically to communicate that the situation he is in and that he finds himself in is so desperate, it is so severe that it feels in his experience as if God has abandoned him, has left him. So I think he's communicating the severity of this situation. Did God literally forsake him? Did he draw away from his anointed king? I don't think so. I think what's going on here is that we are being told that David's experience, now we don't know exactly what the experience was, but we do can make some, you know, kind of speculations. And I think what's going on here is it's more that David feels a separation from God. Now, why would David feel a separation from God? We, it's our sin, right? Our sin creates a separation between us and God. Isaiah used very similar language in Isaiah 59 when he says this in verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. None of us, when we sin, feel close to God, right? And I think that's built in. We should feel that. We should feel something wrong, some kind of something is not right, so that we are not comfortable in our sin. Now, David's experience here, maybe it's his own sin. Maybe it's the sin of others. He's going to go on to talk about the, the oppression and the persecution of those around him. But in this experience, he feels so ground down, so defeated, so hopeless, that to him, it feels as if the presence of God has left, that he has been abandoned. And I think we're okay. I think we're right to say that this is probably a result of sin and not some kind of defect in God's character. David isn't accusing God. I don't get the sense of accusation as if, what are you doing? You should have done this and you're not here. He just feels this way. He feels a separation because he goes on in verses 3 and 4 and he makes a statement about God's holiness. Okay, so first he starts with a separation. Why have you forsaken me? I'm in this really tough spot. Yet, he says, you are holy. Why does he do that? Why is he talking about the holiness of God immediately after talking about his experience here? By saying God is holy, David is saying <clears throat> God is perfect. Right? God's holiness is his perfection. It's who he is at the core. 
that he is removed from sin. The silence of God, this is what I want you to understand, is not owing to some sort of defect in God's character or inability. Sometimes we get ourselves in situations or you talk to somebody and they talk or we think sometimes that we have put ourselves beyond the reach of God. And maybe that's because of your own sin, my own sin. Maybe that's because of some situation you find yourself in. I think what we can glean from this, among many things, this is not God's inability. This is not the shortening of God's arm, as it were. This is the way David is responding to this situation. Now, perhaps we can see a little better why Jesus chooses this text when he is on the cross. Of all the things he could have said, he pulls from Psalm 22. And we know that in the humanity of Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, he is feeling all of the weight, all of the sting, all of the punishment of our sin, the sins of his people. And in bearing that awful load, in his humanity, it feels as if the presence of God has left him. So Jesus cries out from the cross, Psalm 22, Why have you forsaken me? God was not absent from the Mount of Crucifixion. The Father's presence was there in His wrath, pouring that out on His Son. And yet in His experience on the cross, Jesus feels this separation, this abandonment. And I think as we understand David, we understand Christ there's a lot of common experience. There's a lot of things we can understand about David and that helps us in our understanding of Jesus as well. The Father was not absent. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But in the humanity of Jesus, he feels a very similar thing that you and I feel, the separation. The difference is it wasn't Jesus' sin, was it? He never sinned. But as the representative head of the new humanity, Jesus takes on the sins of everyone. And in bearing that weight, it is as if the Father is nowhere around. He, he takes all of that and absorbs it unto himself and cries out, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? This is what causes David to cry out to God. He feels this separation. Now, David goes on in Psalm 22 and describes himself as a worm and not a man. Again, this is figurative language. Okay, David's not having an identity crisis here. He's just saying, if God is holy, set apart, high above, the lowest form of life under that would be a worm. So see the distinction again between the holiness of God and the experience of David. He's trying to help us understand his lowness, how he feels brought down to the dust. Those around David are mocking him. Verse 7 says they literally make faces at him. And it's interesting to note that the accusations that these people are hurling at David are not lies. It's true. The things that they are accusing him of, if you will, are true things. Only they're turning it around and meant it to be a mockery. They're not encouraging David. They're not saying, oh, well, you, you trust in the Lord. I bet the Lord will deliver you. That's not what's going on. 
They're turning this around and saying, you go around bragging about your trust in God, let God deliver you then. You sitting here whining about your circumstances, if God is so powerful, he'll deliver you. Same thing happens to Jesus as he hangs on the cross. Listen for similar language. I'm going to read from Matthew 27, verse 39. And listen to what happens here as Jesus hangs on the cross. Matthew 27, 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, Well, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he has said, I am the son of God. Sound familiar? It's almost verbatim, right? We've got to keep that in mind as we read Old Testament stuff that this is showing us what's going to happen in the future. So here again we see the human experience of King David, his feeling of sin, his, the mockery and everything that he is enduring is the same experience as the King Jesus. The mocking of the people around David is the same as the mocking of the people around Jesus. And one thing this tells us, now it tells us a lot. I'm just going to say one thing. This tells us that Jesus really did experience what I call the full spectrum of humanity. There is nothing that you or I will ever experience that Jesus Christ cannot relate to. When we read in Hebrews chapter 4, excuse me, that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness, think of Psalm 22. It was genuine. This is not some kind of hypothetical language. Hebrews 4 is not a metaphor. It's just telling us the reality that because Christ endured all this ridicule, all the shame, all the torture, all the punishment, He knows you and everything that you're going through. And what an encouragement. You know, sometimes we get kind of upset at our politicians because it's like, they don't know what we're going through. They sit over there, they're at the Capitol, they're passing laws, they're doing all this stuff. They have no idea what we're going through down here in Monticello. Jesus is not a politician like that. He knows exactly what you are going through. And not only does he know, like he read the book about it, he experienced it for you. So that as you go through times when you wonder, what are you doing, God, or where are you, Jesus knows. And you can call on him, and you can cry to him, and he will hear you. It's a genuine human experience that Christ had. But even in David's experience, now we're going to jump back to Psalm 22. Even when he feels as though God has abandoned him, when he when he understands that sin and the effect of other sin and all of this has created a separation between him and God, he reassures himself of the Father's care for him. 
Look at verses 9 through 11. David recounts the truth that God has been his protection, his source of supply since birth. Now, the English is softened a little bit from what the Hebrew language says. And if, if you know even just a little bit about Hebrew, you know that there are some very descriptive words used. They did not pull any punches on the intensity and the descriptions and the imagery that they used to communicate. And so what this verse here in verse 9 says in the Hebrew is, you are the one who burst me forth from the womb. Same word used in the days of Noah's flood when the fountains of the deep opened and the water burst forth from the ground. You remember that language when you read about the flood? So what David is saying is that God is the one who preserved him through that peril, that turbulence of birth, and brought him safely through, and he's also the God now who will bring him through this turbulence and this peril. Just as a child is comforted by being laid on his mother after birth, so David is going to take comfort and solace from the nearness of his God. And so in the middle of all of this, whatever is going on here, David says, I'm going to trust in the Lord. God is the one who has preserved me through all of my past experience, and he will not leave me now. Even if in his humanness David feels a separation, he trusts in God, and he's going to continue to trust in God. Now let's keep moving through the text. Verses 12 through 21, we see the attack and the effect of David's enemies. David again uses metaphors to communicate to his readers, the powerful, sharp-fanged, clawed adversaries. He uses bulls and lions and dogs. Now, he's not talking about literal animals. Again, this is imagery. This is metaphorical language. He wants his readers to understand. Now, remember when we were in Psalm, boy, this is just a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about the horse as the symbol of strength in military. Remember that? Bulls were also a symbol of power. If you've been around a bull, you know they can be pretty powerful. And especially the region of Bashan was historically known for having these unbelievably powerful bulls. So David is reaching for this language to help his readers and just to process himself. This is the, this is the gravity of the situation. It's not as if he says, help me, I'm surrounded by mice. That wouldn't be very intimidating, would it? Maybe for some of us who don't like mice. But get this, get that there is power, there is effect behind his enemies. This is real. This is not some kind of dreamed up thing. There is real danger and real problems here. And get this language, you can see the hopelessness in David's situation when we read things like, many bulls, listen to the verbs, encompass me, strong bulls surround me, a company of evildoers encircles me. This is all language of being cut off, right? David is surrounded by his enemies with no hope of getting out of it. He says, with none to deliver. This is a hopeless situation. And now, while we don't know the exact situation that caused David to write this, it seems desperate. <laughs> you normally wouldn't use language of being surrounded and closed in by wild animals unless it's a pretty severe situation. He's dried up. He's burnt out. He compares his life to a piece of broken pottery. 
So going along with the worm theme from earlier, David is trying to communicate his lowness. He can't get any lower than being a broken piece of dried up pottery laying in the ground. Now, of course, we read this psalm and we see David's experience. But just as we've been making connections now to the New Testament, we also understand that this experience is not unique to David alone. We see Jesus going through many of the same things, having many of the same problems, encountering many of the same circumstances. In this psalm, clearly we see the foreshadowing of the suffering of the Messiah. And not only foreshadowing, but as we pair this text with the book of Hebrews and with Matthew and Mark, we see explicitly that this is indeed written about Jesus. In the midst of this suffering, in the midst of feeling the effect of the attack of his enemies, David calls on the Lord for help. Verses 19 through 21. Let's read those again together. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now this prayer for help brings us to our third and final point, the promise to praise. Looking at verses 22 to 33. We have to note here, I hope you see this, there is a massive swing in what David is experiencing. If you look at verse 1, actually everything up through verse 21, and then you get to 22, something has happened. Something has changed. Because no longer is it desperation and lowliness and torment and hopelessness, but now we have this, this boast almost that David is going to speak of the deliverance and the power and the salvation of his God. Let's read these verses. Look at verse 22. It seems in this section that David is looking back on what happened and he is declaring what God has done. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. <clears throat> so it appears that God has answered the prayer. David cries to the Lord, and now I think what we're hearing is the experience that David had when God answers his prayer and comes through. And rescues him. Now the response to God's salvation is to declare his goodness to the peoples, to the congregation of the righteous. Same group that we read about in Psalm 1, if you remember that from a couple years ago. David is rescued from death and he is rescued to praise. And I just have to mention, if we read this psalm with an eye to the future, if you are looking in Psalm 22, for pointers, we see quite a bit, don't we? Like I said, there's some explicit things, but there's also some implicit things, things that you could look at and go, hmm, that's really similar to some other situations. Let me just point out one thing. David mentions that he is being laid down into the dust of death in verse 15. And certainly, his experience 
nowadays when we say near-death experience, it means something different. But he really does have this experience of being laid down. When someone dies, we lay them in the ground. God said, from dust you came, from dust you return. So being laid in the dust of death is David's experience of being brought so low, it is as if he has died. And now we get to verse 22 and we see that there has been, if I might say it, a resurrection of sorts. Going from being laid in the dust of the ground to being proclaiming the goodness and the salvation and the glory of God. Something has happened. Isn't this the same thing as what happened to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? That He experiences death, He is laid in the ground, He is resurrected, and then proclaims this truth to His brothers. I want to read from Hebrews chapter 2. In fact, would you turn there with me? Turn to the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 2, and I'm going to start in verse 9, because this situation parallels, I think, what we are seeing in Psalm 22. So turn to Hebrews chapter 2. And I'm going to start in verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. We're kind of picking up in the middle of a paragraph, so if you want to go back and get the context, you can. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So there's the death that we talked about so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and he and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and here he quotes Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So David has this experience where he is laid in the dust of death. There is a resurrection of sorts, and he is proclaiming the good news to his brothers. We're told in the book of Hebrews, this is what Jesus did. He experiences death. He is raised to life, and now, using this language of the psalm, he is, through his gospel and through his apostles, proclaiming the message of salvation through God. Isn't that great? (laughs) I mean, it's one thing to see this in David's life, but it means something so much more when we see it in Christ, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Look again now at these last few verses of Psalm 22. Let's look at verse 27 and notice, again, just the polar opposite from the beginning of this passage and the experience of David to now where we find him at the end of this psalm. Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him and shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him and it shall be told of the Lord in the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. What has God done? We get to the end here and say, okay, there's going to be this proclamation 
to the coming generations that God has done it. What has God done? That's a question we should ask. I think it's answered just a few verses previous. Verse 24, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Now here's what I meant just a moment ago when I said, you know, it, it might not make a big difference to you if God heard and answered the prayers of David 3,200 years, whatever it was ago. But it should matter infinitely that God hears the prayers of His Son, Jesus Christ. Why? Why do I say that? Remember what we've been saying here for the past few weeks in the Psalms? As goes the king, so goes the people. What happens to the king, he gives to the people. If we have confidence that God has heard and answered the cries of his son, Jesus Christ, then you and I have grounds to believe that God will hear your prayer and answer you. Yes, it's encouraging to see how this played out in David's life. But he was just a pointer to the one who can actually make a difference in your life. And my, my closing encouragement, my application of this to you is this. If Jesus did it, so can you. When you were younger, or maybe kids uh, now, you relate to this. Did you ever get caught doing something and somebody says, why did you think you could do that? And you say, well, because I saw him do it. As if that justified your behavior. <laughs> I'm sure no one's ever done that besides me in this room. This is what I'm saying is happening in this psalm. And when we apply it to Christ. When you approach God in prayer, when you cry out to God in prayer because of your frustration, your separation, whatever the case may be, and someone says, who are you to cry out to God? You think he's going to actually hear you? You can say, yes, because he heard Jesus and I belong to Jesus. There's a connection here that we have to see. As goes the king, so goes the people. We see here that the prayer of the anointed king was heard and answered. Jesus is that anointed king. So have confidence in your prayers. If Jesus can do it, so can you. Use the language of the Bible to communicate your heart to God. That is totally okay. Use the Psalms. Use the prayers of Paul. Use whatever. If you don't know how to do that, we've got free books out there. Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. It's excellent. Take one. Take two. Learn how to use the language of the Scriptures. This is what Jesus did, and as his people, it is what we ought to do. When you don't know what to say, pray the Scriptures. Because if it was heard when Christ did it. It will be heard when we do it. Let me just make one more comment. The only way to expect that our prayers will be heard is if we belong to Jesus. If you are a member of his kingdom. So as we're done now, we're going to come to the table in just a moment. Do a little self-examination. Do you belong to the king? Do his benefits extend to you? 
can you look at this and say, that's my king. And because of what he did, I have confidence. Or do you look at this and say, oh, I'd really like that, but I don't know how. Either way, you're in the right place. So as we pray now, pray with me and ask that the Spirit of God would work in your heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the only reason that I am able to come to you right now in prayer is because of what Jesus Christ has done. And the only hope that we have now, these brothers and sisters gathered here, the only hope of you hearing our prayers is that because we know you have heard Christ's prayer. And so, Lord, for those who are believers, for those who belong to you, strengthen our faith and give us courage to pray knowing that you will hear us. Help us to anticipate your answer. And Father, for those here that want this but don't know how to have it, work now by your Spirit. Convict them of sin. Grant them the gift of repentance that they would turn from sin and cast themselves upon you for mercy and could leave here today, right now, with the confidence that you will hear them when, you, when they pray. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that he is a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness because he experienced the full gamut of humanity. Lord, raise our affections for your son. And even now as we come to the table, make this a sweet time of remembrance and celebration. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.